Hi, I'm Barry Zworestein, author of Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing, an operational manual for veterans adjusting to civilian life. I thought today that I'd like to really talk to you all about how your brain works under trauma, how the military brain and the civilian brain are actually two very different brains. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to teach you some basic brain understanding and some neuroscience understanding, but teach you in a very unusual way. What I'd like to do is, as a basis of understanding, to use operational concepts um, to teach you to understand what is happening inside you. And then at a later stage, we can look at some of the tools and you'll have a greater context of understanding to um, think about how to use them and what impact they'll have on you. Okay. Now, I found that... Um, I found that one of the most valuable tools I use with veterans in explaining how the brain and, and trauma work is, as I said, to use operational concepts to train in neuroscience understandings. If you think about it, just as a map and a compass and an awareness of the territory to be covered are critical to successful patrol, so too is the understanding of the terrain of the brain. Now, with this understanding, how you think, feel and react will actually start to make more sense. I find a lot of veterans, if they've been working with people where they're not really given a context of understanding, they'll be given things to do, but they won't really understand why they're doing them. Um, what I'm going to do is focus on two operational areas. And the one I'm going to focus on is the front of the brain. The second one I'm going to focus on and talk about is the back of the brain. So to keep things simple, Think about the front of the brain as your smart brain and the back of the brain as your impulsive brain. Your front has the ability to think, it can reason, and to make sure that when you do set up your claymore mine, it's facing outwards. For those of you that have handled claymores, you know there's, there's a, a thing which says facing this way. Well, if you don't really understand how your brain works, you're likely to do stuff where it's facing the wrong way, which will be towards you and not a good idea. Now, the front of your brain, what it does is it thinks, it plans, and it strategizes. It's, it's like stuff that helps you to rationalize, it helps you to reason, and um, it helps you stop getting yourself into trouble and making decisions that are simply not going to work. The back of your brain, however, is quite likely to set up an ambush with your claymore either facing towards you or destructively outwards towards other people and sometimes even, and a lot of the time, even to those that you care about. The back of your brain is the part of your brain that immediately responds when things go wrong. If you think about it, it's continuously in action and with high states of hypervigilance in what is known in military talk as being in contacts and using fire force. For those of you that don't know what a contact is, it's the action of becoming engaged with the enemy and fire force is the deployment of helicopters, both to place troops on the ground in a contact and to engage from the air with weapons. This was very much a, a military tactic that was developed during my war, the Rhodesian Bush War. So the back of your brain is, is reactive. It's there to keep you safe or it's there in moments when you simply lose the plot and you losing control. And the front of the brain is the one that rationalizes, creates constraints. Now, what happens with trauma is that trauma results in significant overactivity in this part of the brain, the back of the brain. The high levels of fear response activate symptoms of alertness, scanning and anticipation of attack. And I'm sure many of you listening to this at the moment know that feeling of alertness and scanning. 
Under normal situations, blood flows from the back to the front, from the back of your brain, the ambush zone, to the front of your brain. As long as this flow is regular, you have the capacity to think about what you're experiencing and you can plan an appropriate response. And that's important, you can plan an appropriate response. You're in the driver's seat and you are in control. So for example, if you are in a restaurant in civilian life, you can understand that you are safe and that there's no need to scan and sit facing the door. I'm willing to bet that the majority of you at the moment listening to this, no matter how many years ago your war was, still face the doorway. Join the club, guys and girls. But for vets with post-traumatic stress disorder and high levels of trauma, the brain is still at war. This is the thing. The brain doesn't just simply readjust automatically. The brain at war remains the brain at war. The brain on operation goes into civilian life still being on operational modality. It doesn't matter how many years have passed. The high levels of stress, depression, anxiety and trauma all kick up levels of arousal in the back of the brain and as a result the blood flow to the front of the brain decreases which in simple terms is the equivalent of um, I guess being on a patrol with no radio map or compass you are completely lost in emotion what happens then is we retreat and function at high levels of alertness in order to protect ourselves and others around us so with the back of the brain running its own show without the capacity to reason or think clearly it's not surprising if you think about it that when a car backfires, what do all of you do? You hit the dirt. Um, in shopping centers, I'm sure lots of you continuously scan. In restaurants, you face the doorway. And then often it's when there's a threat, whether it's somebody screaming at you or shouting at you, often the reaction is excessive. And then it's, I'm sure all of you find it's really very difficult to recover quickly. You kick up really fast and you come down really slowly. You know, I always have this memory of um, once in training, a guy was with an MAG, a machine gun, and um, he had a runaway gun. Um, for those of you who don't know what a runaway gun is, it's where the weapon continues to fire on its own volition. And at that point, he was in such a high state of fear that there was no longer any blood flow to the front of his brain. And what he did was he began to turn around while still holding a runaway MAG, which means that anybody in his field of fire was going to get hit. There's no logical and rational ability to moderate emotional overload. Now, many veterans who arrive home, their brains, as I said, are still on operational mode. And as a result, and even though the war may be long over or recently concluded, they do still continue to operate at home as if they were still on operations. As the soldiers had done an operation, their partners and children now live in high states of alertness they live with fear, they live with uncertainty at home because of their father or their mother's behavior. Their brains remaining fully operational often leave their loved ones feeling as if they were in the middle of a field of landmines scattered by their partner or father's or mother's trauma and PTSD. So what I often say is we go to war and then we bring the war home to our families and our family life becomes the battleground in which our children and our partners become the casualties. It's tragic because I always say PTSD is not who we are, it's what we have and we struggle with. Now, whereas in operations and contacts we can, we can react with aggression, these trained and really well-wired in behaviors at home and civilian life can and do have disastrous effects on those we love. And I guess as a result, 
so many veterans turn to alcohol as a way to release, as a way to escape, and a way to relax. But you know, this is a form of R&R, again a term, rest and relaxation, that is no positive outcome. Because what happens is, through things like alcohol, etc., we literally become a hostage to our own trauma. It drives us deeper and deeper into despair as we unsuccessfully attempt to navigate our way through the unpredictabilities of civilian territory. You know, one vet said to me a long time ago, he said, it was so much simpler in the military. I knew where I stood. I depended and trusted the men around me and they in turn respected and trusted me. We were a family, a team, we stuck together. Rank defines codes of conduct. In civilian life, there are no such systems. Everything feels unpredictable. And to tell the truth, I kind of do believe it is a bit unpredictable. This vet said to me, I can walk into a supermarket and someone's going to give me a hard time. I'll be driving my car and another driver will cut me off or fly into a rage at me. I don't have my friends, my team and my brothers to back me up. And I think that's a challenge, a huge challenge for veterans transitioning into um, civilian life is they lose their mates, they lose their brothers, they lose their tribe, they lose their team. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to tie this all together. And now I'd like to look at the back of the brain from an operational point of view. The back of the brain I'm going to call, well, I'll, I'll get to that. Let me just start off with the front of the brain. I'm going to call that your relay station or your OP. Now, the front of your brain or your relay station or your OP, this is the part that collects information coming in from the external environment. This part of ourselves evaluates rapidly what needs to be attended to, what you need to keep under observation or immediately respond to. It's very much, as I've said, the rational thinking, planning, observant part of ourselves. The more we are able to remain in OP mode, and what I call OP is the mixture of observe, plan, think and organize mode, the more likely we're going to be able to accurately assess situations and effectively manage them. When we step out of OP mode, the outside world can certainly begin to be perceived as dangerous and a real threat. And that includes other drivers, a cardboard box on the side of the road, or chaotic shopping centers. Again, I'm, I'm sure this must be resonating with many of you that are listening at the moment. This is the part of our brain, the front part, the OP part, that has perspective. It can think, it can plan, and it can coordinate. Without this part of our brain functioning properly, it's impossible to lack perspective. And as a result, being able to think or plan is severely impaired. It's like going on a patrol and not having a, a map or a compass. Without this perspective, of course, we run the risk of friendly fire, which what I say in civilian terms equates to unnecessary and excessive reactivity to situations that, you know, at a realistic and rational level, do not place us or those around us at risk. An example of this is a veteran who describes a method of um, where he used to place weapons all around the house. And his family had been trained and disciplined to observe arcs of fire and to triple check that all windows and doors were secured. And at night, they would constantly wake up to listen and recheck. And any lapses in their vigilance and safety protocols from these members of the family would be met with frustrated rage um, from, their, from their father or their mother, depending on who was the veteran, um, based around the anxiety and fears about the risk of attack. 
Is this rational? No. But to the brain, it's real. Our challenge, I think, is to begin to use this part of our brain and begin to learn to stand down the other parts of our brain in civilian life. And by stand down, I don't mean that we switch off the parts of our brain that instinctively react. So, for example, should a car lose control and drive at us or should our young child fall in the pool or should a snake rear up in front of us on a hike? We're not going to simply just look at it and observe. We're going to act straight away instinctively. By standing down, I mean that we begin to activate the thinking parts of our brain, the OP part of our brain, so that we no longer hear every backfire as a shot or view every object on the side of the road as a potential IED. The second thing I want to talk about is your trip flare. The trip flare is what I call the brain's early warning system. The trip flare expects threat and danger to be around every corner. That is why in an ambush, we, we stick up a trip flare. It's the first thing that's going to get triggered in an ambush. It alerts us and triggers us into an aggressive concerted attack. It is from this position that the claymore mine is triggered. Trip flare goes, claymore mine gets triggered. So the trip flare in our brain, if it's kicking up all the time, will play a significant role in anxiety because we are in hyper states of arousal. It is that part of our brain that is always alerted to changes in our environment. It's that part of our brain that lies in ambush. It's constantly alert to unusual sounds and the potential for someone, the enemy or anybody to walk into our killing zone. Imagine coming into civilian life and your killing zone, your trip flare, your OP, your MAG gunners, your ambush zones are still active. It's a recipe for disaster. You know, when the trip flare position is acute, blood flow to the relay station or the OP is significantly reduced. And this is something I found a lot of people actually didn't know. Blood flow to the front of the brain gets absolutely reduced when the back of your brain or your ambush zone kicks up. So what happens is that the more you kick up in the back of your brain, the more restrictive is your capacity to think, plan, assess and interpret. Which of course, if you think about it, it can and it does result in behaviours that can be destructive to yourself and others. So the consequence of a shutdown OP and an activated trip flare state can result in a contact. And, you know, as I've said earlier, having a contact in civilian life, whether it's at your kids, your wife, your boss, your friends, is a really bad thing. It comes out with a lot of very negative consequences. The third thing I want to talk about is the contact sequence. Contact sequence is that part of your brain that gets you ready to react and initiate a response. It's that part of your brain that carries your HE grenades, your FOSS grenades, your claymores, MAGs, mortars, whatever else you're carrying. And, you know, sorry, guys and girls, but, you know, I come from the 70s when we fought a war and I'm sure weaponry and everything else is very different now. But if you get my meaning, you've got my meaning. Now, remaining in contact zone will always result in casualties in civilian life. And casualties in civilian life because you've gone into contact mode is never going to be excusable. Stuff goes down as a result. The impact of this level of arousal and reactivity on well-being at high levels is also really toxic to you and it can increase the likelihood of self-destructive behaviors so if you're not managing them your anxiety is going to kick up your stress is going to kick up and alcohol abuse is going to kick up and the worse your territory and civilian life gets the more conflictual it gets the more your anxiety stress and even potentially alcohol abuse are going to are going to occur okay so to um, slowly draw this to a close 
Um, I will now take it that all of you are operationally trained neuroscientists. All right, so well done. No certificates come with us. And um, slowly what I'd like to do in podcast is to look at some simple and effective ways for all of you to begin to create more blood flow to the front of your brain and slowly move you from reactivity to reason. All right, from reactivity to reason. And so I'll get to this over, over future podcasts. And, um, you know, I think this is something as well. Give to your partners to read, your non-veteran partner. Think about it. If you have anything that you'd like to ask me questions about this, again, feel free to um, send me a message. You can contact me on my website, which is www.barryswarestein.com, B-A-R-R-Y-Z-W-O-R-E-S-T-I-N-E.com. You can leave a voice message there, a normal message. You can contact me on the Facebook author group, but please feel free to, um, to send me a message, touch ground with me, and I'm happy to answer anything. All right, take care. I hope you find this useful. I'd love to get your feedback. And um, guys and girls, try and stay on your OP. Avoid your ambush zone. Cheers, eh? Bye. Hi, I'm Barry Zwarestein, author of Which Ways Your Claim Were Facing, an operational manual for veterans adjusting to civilian life. I thought today that I'd like to really talk to you all about how your brain works under trauma, how the military brain and the civilian brain are actually two very different brains. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to teach you some basic brain understanding and some neuroscience understanding, but teach you in a very unusual way. What I'd like to do is as a basis of understanding to use operational concepts um, to teach you to understand what is happening inside you. And then at a later stage, we can look at some of the tools and you'll have a greater context of understanding to um, think about how to use them and what impact they'll have on you. Okay, now I found that um, I found that one of the most valuable tools I use with veterans in explaining how the brain and, and trauma work is, as I said, to use operational concepts to train in neuroscience understandings. If you think about it, just as a map and a compass and an awareness of the territory to be covered are critical to successful patrol, so too is the understanding of the terrain of the brain. Now, with this understanding, how you think, feel and react will actually start to make more sense. I find a lot of veterans, if they've been working with people where they're not really given a context of understanding, they'll be given things to do, but they won't really understand why they're doing them. Um, what I'm going to do is focus on two operational areas. And the one I'm going to focus on is the front of the brain. The second one I'm going to focus on and talk about is the back of the brain. So to keep things simple, think about the front of the brain as your smart brain and the back of the brain as your impulsive brain. Your front has the ability to think, it can reason, and to make sure that when you do set up your claymore mine, it's facing outwards. For those of you that have handled claymores, you know there's, there's a, a thing which says facing this way. Well, if you don't really understand how your brain works, you're likely to do stuff where it's facing the wrong way, which will be towards you and not a good idea. Now, the front of your brain, what it does is it thinks, it plans, and it strategizes. It's, it's like stuff that helps you to rationalize, it helps you to reason, 
and um, it helps you stop getting yourself into trouble and making decisions that are simply not going to work. The back of your brain, however, is quite likely to set up an ambush with your claymore either facing towards you or destructively outwards towards other people and sometimes even and a lot of the time even to those that you care about. The back of your brain is the part of your brain that immediately responds when things go wrong. If you think about it, it's continuously in action and with high states of hypervigilance in what is known in military talk as being in contacts and using fire force. For those of you that don't know what a contact is, it's the action of becoming engaged with the enemy and fire force is the deployment of helicopters both to place troops on the ground in a contact and to engage from the air with weapons. This was very much a, a military tactic that was developed during my war, the Rhodesian Bush War. So the back of your brain is, is reactive. It's there to keep you safe. Or it's there in moments when you simply lose the plot and you losing control. And the front of the brain is the one that rationalizes, creates constraints. Now, what happens with trauma is that trauma results in significant overactivity in this part of the brain, the back of the brain. The high levels of fear response activate symptoms of alertness, scanning and anticipation of attack. And I'm sure many of you listening to this at the moment know that feeling of alertness and scanning. Under normal situations, blood flows from the back to the front, from the back of your brain, the ambush zone to the front of your brain. As long as this flow is regular, you have the capacity to think about what you're experiencing and you can plan an appropriate response. And that's important. You can plan an appropriate response. You're in the driver's seat and you are in control. So, for example, if you are in a restaurant in civilian life, you can understand that you are safe and that there's no need to scan and sit facing the door. I'm willing to bet that the majority of you at the moment listening to this, no matter how many years ago your war was, still face the doorway. Join the club, guys and girls. But for vets with post-traumatic stress disorder and high levels of trauma, the brain is still at war. This is the thing. The brain doesn't just simply readjust automatically. The brain at war remains the brain at war. The brain on operation goes into civilian life still being on operational modality. It doesn't matter how many years have passed. The high levels of stress, depression, anxiety and trauma all kick up levels of arousal in the back of the brain. And as a result, the blood flow to the front of the brain decreases, which in simple terms is the equivalent of, um, I guess, being on a patrol with no radio, map or compass. You're completely lost in emotion. What happens then is we retreat and function at high levels of alertness in order to protect ourselves and others around us. So with the back of the brain running its own show without the capacity to reason or think clearly, it's not surprising if you think about it that when a car backfires, what do all of you do? You hit the dirt. Um, in shopping centers, I'm sure lots of you continuously scan. In restaurants, you face the doorway. And then often it's when there's a threat, whether it's somebody screaming at you or shouting at you, often the reaction is excessive. And then as I'm sure all of you find it's really very difficult to recover quickly. You kick up really fast and you come down really slowly. You know, I always have this memory of um, once in training, a guy was with an MAG, a machine gun, and um, he had a runaway gun. Um, for those of you who don't know what a runaway gun is, it's where the weapon continues to fire on its own volition. And at that point, he was in such a high state of fear that there was no longer any blood flow to the front of his brain. And what he did was he began to turn around 
while still holding a runaway MAG, which means that anybody in his field of fire was going to get hit. There's no logical and rational ability to moderate emotional overload. Now, many veterans who arrive home, their brains, as I said, are still on operational mode. And as a result, and even though the war may be long over or recently concluded, they do still continue to operate at home as if they were still on operations. As the soldiers had done an operation, their partners and children now live in high states of alertness. They live in fear, they live with uncertainty at home because of their father or their mother's behavior. Their brains remaining fully operational often leave their loved ones feeling as if they were in the middle of a field of landmines scattered by their partner or father's or mother's trauma and PTSD. So what I often say is, we go to war and then we bring the war home to our families and our family life becomes the battleground in which our children and our partners become the casualties. It's tragic because I always say PTSD is not who we are, it's what we have and we struggle with. Now, whereas in operations and contacts we can, regret, we can react with aggression, these trained and really well-wired in behaviors at home and civilian life can and do have disastrous effects on those we love. And I guess as a result, so many veterans turn to alcohol as a way to release, as a way to escape and a way to relax. But you know, this is a form of R&R, again, a term rest and relaxation, that is no positive outcome. Because what happens is, through things like alcohol, etc., we literally become a hostage to our own trauma. It drives us deeper and deeper into despair as we unsuccessfully attempt to navigate our way through the unpredictabilities of civilian territory. You know, one vet said to me a long time ago, he said, it was so much simpler in the military. I knew where I stood. I depended and trusted the men around me and they in turn respected and trusted me. We were a family, a team, we stuck together. Rank defines codes of conduct. In civilian life, there are no such systems. Everything feels unpredictable. And to tell the truth, I kind of do believe it is a bit unpredictable. This vet said to me, I can walk into a supermarket and someone's gonna give me a hard time. I'll be driving my car and another driver will cut me off or fly into a rage at me. I don't have my friends, my team and my brothers to back me up. And I think that's a challenge, a huge challenge for veterans transitioning into um, civilian life is they lose their mates, they lose their brothers, they lose their tribe, they lose their team. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to tie this all together. And now I'd like to look at the back of the brain from an operational point of view. The back of the brain I'm going to call, well, I'll, I'll get to that. Let me just start off with the front of the brain. I'm going to call that your relay station or your OP. Now, the front of your brain or your relay station or your OP, this is the part that collects information coming in from the external environment. This part of ourselves evaluates rapidly what needs to be attended to, what you need to keep under observation or immediately respond to. It's very much, as I've said, the rational, thinking, planning, observant part of ourselves. The more we are able to remain in OP mode, and what I call OP is the mixture of observe, plan, think and organize mode, 
the more likely we're going to be able to accurately assess situations and effectively manage them. When we step out of OP mode, the outside world can certainly begin to be perceived as dangerous and a real threat. And that includes other drivers, a cardboard box on the side of the road, or chaotic shopping centers. Again, I'm, I'm sure this must be resonating with many of you that are listening at the moment. This is the part of our brain, the front part, the OP part, that has perspective. It can think, it can plan, and it can coordinate. Without this part of our brain functioning properly, it's impossible to lack perspective. And as a result, being able to think or plan is severely impaired. It's like going on a patrol and not having a, a map or a compass. Without this perspective, of course, we run the risk of friendly fire, which, what I say in civilian terms, equates to unnecessary and excessive reactivity to situations that, you know, at a realistic and rational level, do not place us or those around us at risk. An example of this is a veteran who describes a method of um, where he used to place weapons all around the house. And his family had been trained and disciplined to observe arcs of fire and to triple check that all windows and doors were secured. And at night, they would constantly wake up to listen and recheck. And any lapses in their vigilance and safety protocols from these members of the family would be met with frustrated rage um, from, their, from their father or their mother, depending on who was the veteran, um, based around the anxiety and fears about the risk of attack. Is this rational? No. But to the brain, it's real. Our challenge, I think, is to begin to use this part of our brain and begin to learn to stand down the other parts of our brain in civilian life. And by stand down, I don't mean that we switch off the parts of our brain that instinctively react. So, for example, should a car lose control and drive at us? Or should our young child fall in the pool? Or should a snake rear up in front of us on a hike? We're not going to simply just look at it and observe. We're going to act straight away instinctively. By standing down, I mean that we begin to activate the thinking parts of our brain, the OP part of our brain, so that we no longer hear every backfire as a shot or view every object on the side of the road as a potential IED. The second thing I want to talk about is your trip flare. The trip flare is what I call the brain's early warning system. The trip flare expects threat and danger to be around every corner. That is why in an ambush, we, we stick up a trip flare. It's the first thing that's gonna get triggered in an ambush. It alerts us and triggers us into an aggressive concerted attack. It is from this position that the claymore mine is triggered. Trip flare goes, claymore mine gets triggered. So the trip flare in our brain, if it's kicking up all the time, will play a significant role in anxiety because we are in hyper states of arousal. It is that part of our brain that is always alerted to changes in our environment. It's that part of our brain that lies in ambush it's constantly alert to unusual sounds and the potential for someone, the enemy or anybody to walk into our killing zone. Imagine coming into civilian life and your killing zone, your trip flare, your OP, your MAG gunners, your ambush zones are still active. It's a recipe for disaster. You know, when the trip flare position is acute, blood flow to the relay station or the OP is significantly reduced. And this is something I found a lot of people actually didn't know. Blood flow to the front of the brain gets absolutely reduced when the back of your brain or your ambush zone kicks up. So what happens is that the more you kick up in the back of your brain, the more restrictive is your capacity to think, plan, assess and interpret. 
which of course, if you think about it, it can and it does result in behaviors that can be destructive to yourself and others. So the consequence of a shutdown OP and an activated triplet state can result in a contact. And you know, as I've said earlier, having a contact in civilian life, whether it's at your kids, your wife, your boss, your friends, is a really bad thing. It comes out with a lot of very negative consequences. The third thing I want to talk about is the contact sequence. Contact sequence is that part of your brain that gets you ready to react and initiate a response. It's that part of your brain that carries your HE grenades, your FOSS grenades, your claymores, MAGs, mortars, whatever else you're carrying. And you know, sorry guys and girls, but you know, I come from the 70s when we fought a war and I'm sure weaponry and everything else is very different now, but if you get my meaning, you've got my meaning. Now remaining in contact zone will always result in casualties in civilian life. And casualties in civilian life because you've gone into contact mode is never gonna be excusable. Stuff goes down as a result. The impact of this level of arousal and reactivity on well-being at high levels is also really toxic to you and it can increase the likelihood of self-destructive behaviors so if you're not managing them your anxiety is going to kick up your stress is going to kick up and alcohol abuse is going to kick up and the worse your territory and civilian life gets the more conflictual it gets the more your anxiety stress and even potentially alcohol abuse are going to are going to occur okay so to um, slowly draw this to a close, um, I will now take it that all of you are operationally trained neuroscientists. All right, so well done, no certificates come with us. And um, slowly what I'd like to do in podcast is to look at some simple and effective ways for all of you to begin to create more blood flow to the front of your brain and slowly move you from reactivity to reason. All right, from reactivity to reason. And so I'll get to this over, over future podcasts. And, um, you know, I think this is something as well. Give to your partners to read, your non-veteran partner. Think about it. If you have anything that you'd like to ask me questions about this, again, feel free to um, send me a message. You can contact me on my website, which is www.barryswarestein.com, B-A-R-R-Y, Z-W-O-R-E-S-T-I-N-E.com. You can leave a voice message there, a normal message. You can contact me on the Facebook author group, but please feel free to, um, to send me a message, touch ground with me, and I'm happy to answer anything. I right, take care. I hope you find this useful. I'd love to get your feedback. And um, guys and girls, try and stay on your OP. Avoid your ambush zone. Cheers, eh? Bye. Hi, I'm Barry Zwarestein, author of Which Way Is Your Claymore Facing, an operational manual for veterans adjusting to civilian life. I thought today that I'd like to really talk to you all about how your brain works under trauma, how the military brain and the civilian brain are actually two very different brains. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to teach you some basic brain understanding and some neuroscience understanding, but teach you in a very unusual way. What I'd like to do is as a basis of understanding to use operational concepts um, to teach you to understand what is happening inside you. And then at a later stage, we can look at some of the tools and you'll have a greater context of understanding to um, think about how to use them and what impact they'll have on you. Okay, now I found that um, 
I found that one of the most valuable tools I use with veterans in explaining how the brain and, and trauma work is, as I said, to use operational concepts to train in neuroscience understandings. If you think about it, just as a map and a compass and an awareness of the territory to be covered are critical to successful patrol, so too is the understanding of the terrain of the brain. Now with this understanding, how you think, feel and react will actually start to make more sense. I find a lot of veterans, if they've been working with people where they're not really given a context of understanding, they'll be given things to do, but they won't really understand why they're doing them. Um, what I'm going to do is focus on two operational areas. And the one I'm going to focus on is the front of the brain. The second one I'm going to focus on and talk about is the back of the brain. So to keep things simple, think about the front of the brain as your smart brain and the back of the brain as your impulsive brain. Your front has the ability to think, it can reason, and to make sure that when you do set up your claymore mine, it's facing outwards. For those of you that have handled claymores, you know there's, there's a, a thing which says facing this way. Well, if you don't really understand how your brain works, you're likely to do stuff where it's facing the wrong way, which will be towards you and not a good idea. Now, the front of your brain, what it does is it thinks, it plans, and it strategizes. It's, it's like stuff that helps you to rationalize, it helps you to reason, and um, it helps you stop getting yourself into trouble and making decisions that are simply not going to work. The back of your brain, however, is quite likely to set up an ambush with your claymore either facing towards you or destructively outwards towards other people, and sometimes even, and a lot of the time, even to those that you care about. The back of your brain is the part of your brain that immediately responds when things go wrong. If you think about it, it's continuously in action and with high states of hypervigilance in what is known in military talk as being in contacts and using fire force. For those of you that don't know what a contact is, it's the action of becoming engaged with the enemy and fire force is the deployment of helicopters both to place troops on the ground in a contact and to engage from the air with weapons. This was very much a, a military tactic that was developed during my war, the Rhodesian Bush War. So the back of your brain is, is reactive. It's there to keep you safe, or it's there in moments when you simply lose the plot and you losing control. And the front of the brain is the one that rationalizes, creates constraints. Now, what happens with trauma is that trauma results in significant overactivity in this part of the brain, the back of the brain. The high levels of fear response activate symptoms of alertness, scanning and anticipation of attack. And I'm sure many of you listening to this at the moment know that feeling of alertness and scanning. Under normal situations, blood flows from the back to the front, from the back of your brain, the ambush zone to the front of your brain. As long as this flow is regular, you have the capacity to think about what you're experiencing and you can plan an appropriate response. And that's important, you can plan an appropriate response. You're in the driver's seat and you are in control. So for example, if you are in a restaurant in civilian life, you can understand that you are safe and that there's no need to scan and sit facing the door. I'm willing to bet that the majority of you at the moment listening to this, no matter how many years ago your war was, still face the doorway. Join the club guys and girls. But for vets with post-traumatic stress disorder and high levels of trauma, the brain is still at war. This is the thing, the brain doesn't just simply 
readjust automatically. The brain at war remains the brain at war. The brain on operation goes into civilian life still being on operational modality. It doesn't matter how many years have passed. The high levels of stress, depression, anxiety and trauma all kick up levels of arousal in the back of the brain and as a result the blood flow to the front of the brain decreases which in simple terms is the equivalent of um, I guess being on a patrol with no radio map or compass you're completely lost in emotion what happens then is we retreat and function at high levels of alertness in order to protect ourselves and others around us so with the back of the brain running its own show without the capacity to reason or think clearly it's not surprising if you think about it that when a car backfires what do all of you do you hit the dirt um, in shopping centers i'm sure lots of you continuously scan in restaurants you face the doorway and then often it's when there's a threat whether it's somebody screaming at you or shouting at you often the reaction is excessive and then as i'm sure all of you find it's really very difficult to recover quickly you kick up really fast and you come down really slowly you know, I always have this memory of um, once in training, a guy was with an MAG, a machine gun, and um, he had a runaway gun. Um, for those of you who don't know what a runaway gun is, it's where the weapon continues to fire on its own volition. And at that point, he was in such a high state of fear that there was no longer any blood flow to the front of his brain. And what he did was he began to turn around while still holding a runaway MAG, which means that anybody in his field of fire was going to get hit. There's no logical and rational ability to moderate emotional overload. Now, many veterans who arrive home, their brains, as I said, are still on operational mode. And as a result, and even though the war may be long over or recently concluded, they do still continue to operate at home as if they were still on operations. As the soldiers had done an operation, their partners and children now live in high states of alertness they live with fear, they live with uncertainty at home because of their father or their mother's behavior. Their brains remaining fully operational often leave their loved ones feeling as if they were in the middle of a field of landmines scattered by their partner or father's or mother's trauma and PTSD. So what I often say is we go to war and then we bring the war home to our families and our family life becomes the battleground in which our children and our partners become the casualties. It's tragic because I always say PTSD is not who we are, it's what we have and we struggle with. Now, whereas in operations and contacts we can, we can react with aggression, these trained and really well-wired in behaviors at home and civilian life can and do have disastrous effects on those we love. And I guess as a result, so many veterans turn to alcohol as a way to release, as a way to escape, and a way to relax. But you know, this is a form of R&R, again a term, rest and relaxation, that is no positive outcome. Because what happens is, through things like alcohol, etc., we literally become a hostage to our own trauma. It drives us deeper and deeper into despair as we unsuccessfully attempt to navigate our way through the unpredictabilities of civilian territory. You know, one vet said to me a long time ago, he said, it was so much simpler in the military. I knew where I stood. I depended and trusted the men around me and they in turn respected and trusted me. We were a family, a team, we stuck together. 
Rank defines codes of conduct. In civilian life, there are no such systems. Everything feels unpredictable. And to tell the truth, I kind of do believe it is a bit unpredictable. This vet said to me, I can walk into a supermarket and someone's going to give me a hard time. I'll be driving my car and another driver will cut me off or fly into a rage at me. I don't have my friends, my team and my brothers to back me up. And I think that's a challenge, a huge challenge for veterans transitioning into um, civilian life is they lose their mates, they lose their brothers, they lose their tribe, they lose their team. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to tie this all together. And now I'd like to look at the back of the brain from an operational point of view. The back of the brain I'm going to call, well, I'll, I'll get to that. Let me just start off with the front of the brain. I'm going to call that your relay station or your OP. Now, the front of your brain or your relay station or your OP, this is the part that collects information coming in from the external environment. This part of ourselves evaluates rapidly what needs to be attended to, what you need to keep under observation or immediately respond to. It's very much, as I've said, the rational thinking, planning, observant part of ourselves. The more we are able to remain in OP mode, and what I call OP is the mixture of observe, plan, think and organize mode, the more likely we're going to be able to accurately assess situations and effectively manage them. When we step out of OP mode, the outside world can certainly begin to be perceived as dangerous and a real threat. And that includes other drivers, a cardboard box on the side of the road, or chaotic shopping centers. Again, I'm, I'm sure this must be resonating with many of you that are listening at the moment. This is the part of our brain, the front part, the OP part, that has perspective. It can think, it can plan, and it can coordinate. Without this part of our brain functioning properly, it's impossible to lack perspective. And as a result, being able to think or plan is severely impaired. It's like going on a patrol and not having a, a map or a compass. Without this perspective, of course, we run the risk of friendly fire, which what I say in civilian terms equates to unnecessary and excessive reactivity to situations that, you know, at a realistic and rational level, do not place us or those around us at risk. An example of this is a veteran who describes a method of um, where he used to place weapons all around the house. And his family had been trained and disciplined to observe arcs of fire and to triple check that all windows and doors were secured. And at night, they would constantly wake up to listen and recheck. And any lapses in their vigilance and safety protocols from these members of the family would be met with frustrated rage um, from, their, from their father or their mother, depending on who was the veteran, um, based around the anxiety and fears about the risk of attack. Is this rational? No. But to the brain, it's real. Our challenge, I think, is to begin to use this part of our brain and begin to learn to stand down the other parts of our brain in civilian life. And by stand down, I don't mean that we switch off the parts of our brain that instinctively react. So, for example, should a car lose control and drive at us? Or should our young child fall in the pool? Or should a snake rear up in front of us on a hike? We're not going to simply just look at it and observe. We're going to act straight away instinctively. By standing down, I mean that we begin to activate the thinking parts of our brain, the OP part of our brain, so that we no longer hear every backfire as a shot or view every object on the side of the road as a potential IED. 
The second thing I want to talk about is your trip flare. The trip flare is what I call the brain's early warning system. The trip flare expects threat and danger to be around every corner. That is why in an ambush, we, we stick up a trip flare. It's the first thing that's going to get triggered in an ambush. It alerts us and triggers us into an aggressive concerted attack. It is from this position that the claymore mine is triggered. Trip flare goes, claymore mine gets triggered. So the trip flare in our brain, if it's kicking up all the time, will play a significant role in anxiety because we are in hyper states of arousal. It is that part of our brain that is always alerted to changes in our environment. It's that part of our brain that lies in ambush. It's constantly alert to unusual sounds and the potential for someone, the enemy or anybody to walk into our killing zone. Imagine coming into civilian life and your killing zone, your trip flare, your OP, your MAG gunners, your ambush zones are still active. It's a recipe for disaster. You know, when the trip flare position is acute, blood flow to the relay station or the OP is significantly reduced. And this is something I found a lot of people actually didn't know. Blood flow to the front of the brain gets absolutely reduced when the back of your brain or your ambush zone kicks up. So what happens is that the more you kick up in the back of your brain, the more restrictive is your capacity to think, plan, assess and interpret. Which of course, if you think about it, it can and it does result in behaviors that can be destructive to yourself and others. So the consequence of a shutdown OP and an activated trip flare state can result in a contact. And you know, as I've said earlier, having a contact in civilian life, whether it's at your kids, your wife, your boss, your friends, is a really bad thing. It comes out with a lot of very negative consequences. The third thing I want to talk about is the contact sequence. Contact sequence is that part of your brain that gets you ready to react and initiate a response. It's that part of your brain that carries your HE grenades, your FOSS grenades, your claymores, MAGs, mortars, whatever else you're carrying. And you know, sorry guys and girls, but you know, I come from the 70s when we fought a war and I'm sure weaponry and everything else is very different now, but if you get my meaning, you've got my meaning. Now remaining in contact zone will always result in casualties in civilian life. And casualties in civilian life because you've gone into contact mode is never going to be excusable. Stuff goes down as a result. The impact of this level of arousal and reactivity on well-being at high levels is also really toxic to you. And it can increase the likelihood of self-destructive behaviors. So if you're not managing them, your anxiety is going to kick up, your stress is going to kick up, and alcohol abuse is going to kick up. And the worse your territory and civilian life gets, the more conflictual it gets, the more your anxiety, stress, and even potentially alcohol abuse are going to, are going to occur. Okay, so to um, slowly draw this to a close, um, I will now take it that all of you are operationally trained neuroscientists. All right, so well done. No certificates come with us. And um, slowly what I'd like to do in podcast is to look at some simple and effective ways for all of you to begin to create more blood flow to the front of your brain and slowly move you from reactivity to reason. All right, from reactivity to reason. And so I'll get to this over, over future podcasts. And, um, you know, I think this is something as well. Give to your partners to read, your non-veteran partner. Think about it. If you have anything that you'd like to ask me questions about this, again, feel free to um, send me a message. You can contact me on my website, which is www 
barryswaristein.com b-a-r-r-y-z-w-o-r-e-s-t-i-n-e.com you can leave a voice message there a normal message you can contact me on the facebook author group but please feel free to um to send me a message touch ground with me and i'm happy to answer anything all right take care i hope you find this useful i'd love to get your feedback and um, guys and girls try and stay on your op avoid your ambush zone cheers eh? bye Hi, I'm Barry Zwaristin, author of Which Way Is Your Claim or Facing, an operational manual for veterans adjusting to civilian life. I thought today that I'd like to really talk to you all about how your brain works under trauma, how the military brain and the civilian brain are actually two very different brains. But what I'd like to do is I'd like to teach you some basic brain understanding and some neuroscience understanding, but teach you in a very unusual way. What I'd like to do is as a basis of understanding to use operational concepts um, to teach you to understand what is happening inside you. And then at a later stage, we can look at some of the tools and you'll have a greater context of understanding to um, think about how to use them and what impact they'll have on you. Okay. Now, I found that um, I found that one of the most valuable tools I use with veterans in explaining how the brain and, and trauma work is, as I said, to use operational concepts to train in neuroscience understandings. If you think about it, just as a map and a compass and an awareness of the territory to be covered are critical to successful patrol, so too is the understanding of the terrain of the brain. Now, with this understanding, how you think, feel and react will actually start to make more sense. I find a lot of veterans, if they've been working with people where they're not really given a context of understanding, they'll be given things to do, but they won't really understand why they're doing them. Um, what I'm going to do is focus on two operational areas. And the one I'm going to focus on is the front of the brain. The second one I'm going to focus on and talk about is the back of the brain. So to keep things simple, think about the front of the brain as your smart brain and the back of the brain as your impulsive brain. Your front has the ability to think, it can reason, and to make sure that when you do set up your claymore mine, it's facing outwards. For those of you that have handled claymores, you know there's, there's a, a thing which says facing this way. Well, if you don't really understand how your brain works, you're likely to do stuff where it's facing the wrong way, which will be towards you and not a good idea. Now, the front of your brain, what it does is it thinks, it plans, and it strategizes. It's, it's like stuff that helps you to rationalize, it helps you to reason, and um, it helps you stop getting yourself into trouble and making decisions that are simply not going to work. The back of your brain, however, is quite likely to set up an ambush with your claymore either facing towards you or destructively outwards towards other people, and sometimes even, and a lot of the time, even to those that you care about. The back of your brain is the part of your brain that immediately responds when things go wrong. If you think about it, it's continuously in action and with high states of hypervigilance in what is known in military talk as being in contacts and using fire force. For those of you that don't know what a contact is, it's the action of becoming engaged with the enemy and fire force is the deployment of helicopters, both to place troops on the ground in a contact 
and to engage from the air with weapons. This is very much a, a military tactic that was developed during my war, the Rhodesian Bush War. So the back of your brain is, is reactive. It's there to keep you safe or it's there in moments when you simply lose the plot and you losing control and the front of the brain is the one that rationalizes, creates constraints. Now, what happens with trauma is that trauma results in significant overactivity in this part of the brain, the back of the brain. The high levels of fear response activate symptoms of alertness, scanning and anticipation of attack. And I'm sure many of you listening to this at the moment know that feeling of alertness and scanning. Under normal situations, blood flows from the back to the front, from the back of your brain, the ambush zone to the front of your brain. As long as this flow is regular, you have the capacity to think about what you're experiencing and you can plan an appropriate response. And that's important. You can plan an appropriate response. You're in the driver's seat and you are in control. So, for example, if you are in a restaurant in civilian life, you can understand that you are safe and that there's no need to scan and sit facing the door. I'm willing to bet that the majority of you at the moment listening to this, no matter how many years ago your war was, still face the doorway. Join the club, guys and girls. But for vets with post-traumatic stress disorder and high levels of trauma, the brain is still at war. This is the thing. The brain doesn't just simply readjust automatically. The brain at war remains the brain at war. The brain on operation goes into civilian life still being on operational modality. It doesn't matter how many years have passed. The high levels of stress, depression, anxiety and trauma all kick up levels of arousal in the back of the brain and as a result the blood flow to the front of the brain decreases which in simple terms is the equivalent of um, I guess being on a patrol with no radio map or compass you completely lost in emotion what happens then is we retreat and function at high levels of alertness in order to protect ourselves and others around us so with the back of the brain running its own show without the capacity to reason or think clearly it's not surprising, if you think about it, that when a car backfires, what do all of you do? You hit the dirt. Um, in shopping centers, I'm sure lots of you continuously scan. In restaurants, you face the doorway. And then often it's when there's a threat, whether it's somebody screaming at you or shouting at you, often the reaction is excessive. And then as I'm sure all of you find it's really very difficult to recover quickly. You kick up really fast and you come down really slowly. You know, I always have this memory of um, once in training, a guy was with an MAG, a machine gun, and um, he had a runaway gun. Um, for those of you who don't know what a runaway gun is, it's where the weapon continues to fire on its own volition. And at that point, he was in such a high state of fear that there was no longer any blood flow to the front of his brain. And what he did was he began to turn around while still holding a runaway MAG, which means that anybody in his field of fire was going to get hit. There's no logical and rational ability to moderate emotional overload. Now, many veterans who arrive home, their brains, as I said, are still on operational mode. And as a result, and even though the war may be long over or recently concluded, they do still continue to operate at home as if they were still on operations. As the soldiers had done an operation, their partners and children now live in high states of alertness they live in fear, they live with uncertainty at home because of their father or their mother's behavior. Their brains remaining fully operational often leave their loved ones feeling as if they were in the middle of a field of landmines scattered 
by their partner or father's or mother's trauma and PTSD. So what I often say is, we go to war and then we bring the war home to our families and our family life becomes the battleground in which our children and our partners become the casualties. It's tragic because I always say PTSD is not who we are, it's what we have and we struggle with. Now, whereas in operations and contacts we can, regret, we can react with aggression, these trained and really well-wired in behaviors at home and civilian life can and do have disastrous effects on those we love. And I guess as a result, so many veterans turn to alcohol as a way to release, as a way to escape, and a way to relax. But you know, this is a form of R&R, again a term, rest and relaxation, that is no positive outcome. Because what happens is, through things like alcohol, etc., we literally become a hostage to our own trauma. It drives us deeper and deeper into despair as we unsuccessfully attempt to navigate our way through the unpredictabilities of civilian territory. You know, one vet said to me a long time ago, he said, it was so much simpler in the military. I knew where I stood. I depended and trusted the men around me and they in turn respected and trusted me. We were a family, a team, we stuck together. Rank defines codes of conduct. In civilian life, there are no such systems. Everything feels unpredictable. And to tell the truth, I kind of do believe it is a bit unpredictable. This vet said to me, I can walk into a supermarket and someone's gonna give me a hard time. I'll be driving my car and another driver will cut me off or fly into a rage at me. I don't have my friends, my team and my brothers to back me up. And I think that's a challenge, a huge challenge for veterans transitioning into um, civilian life is they lose their mates, they lose their brothers, they lose their tribe, they lose their team. So what I'd like to do now is I'd like to tie this all together. And now I'd like to look at the back of the brain from an operational point of view. The back of the brain I'm going to call, well, I'll, I'll get to that. Let me just start off with the front of the brain. I'm going to call that your relay station or your OP. Now, the front of your brain or your relay station or your OP, this is the part that collects information coming in from the external environment. This part of ourselves evaluates rapidly what needs to be attended to, what you need to keep under observation or immediately respond to. It's very much, as I've said, the rational, thinking, planning, observant part of ourselves. The more we are able to remain in OP mode, and what I call OP is the mixture of observe, plan, think and organize mode, the more likely we're going to be able to accurately assess situations and effectively manage them. When we step out of OP mode, the outside world can certainly begin to be perceived as dangerous and a real threat. And that includes other drivers, a cardboard box on the side of the road, or chaotic shopping centers. Again, I'm, I'm sure this must be resonating with many of you that are listening at the moment. This is the part of our brain, the front part, the OP part, that has perspective. It can think, it can plan, and it can coordinate. Without this part of our brain functioning properly, it's impossible to lack perspective. And as a result, being able to think or plan is severely impaired. It's like going on a patrol and not having a, a map or a compass. Without this perspective, of course, we run the risk of friendly fire. 
which what I say in civilian terms equates to unnecessary and excessive reactivity to situations that, you know, at a realistic and rational level do not place us or those around us at risk. An example of this is a veteran who describes a method of um, where he used to place weapons all around the house. And his family had been trained and disciplined to observe arcs of fire and to triple check that all windows and doors were secured. And at night, they would constantly wake up to listen and recheck. And any lapses in their vigilance and safety protocols from these members of the family would be met with frustrated rage um, from, their, from their father or their mother, depending on who was the veteran, um, based around the anxiety and fears about the risk of attack. Is this rational? No. But to the brain, it's real. Our challenge, I think, is to begin to use this part of our brain and begin to learn to stand down the other parts of our brain in civilian life. And by stand down, I don't mean that we switch off the parts of our brain that instinctively react. So, for example, should a car lose control and drive at us? Or should our young child fall in the pool? Or should a snake rear up in front of us on a hike? We're not going to simply just look at it and observe. We're going to act straight away instinctively. By standing down, I mean that we begin to activate the thinking parts of our brain, the OP part of our brain, so that we no longer hear every backfire as a shot or view every object on the side of the road as a potential IED. The second thing I want to talk about is your trip flare. The trip flare is what I call the brain's early warning system. The trip flare expects threat and danger to be around every corner. That is why in an ambush, we, we stick up a trip flare. It's the first thing that's going to get triggered in an ambush. It alerts us and triggers us into an aggressive concerted attack. It is from this position that the claymore mine is triggered. Trip flare goes, claymore mine gets triggered. So the trip flare in our brain, if it's kicking up all the time, will play a significant role in anxiety because we are in hyper states of arousal. It is that part of our brain that is always alerted to changes in our environment. It's that part of our brain that lies in ambush. It's constantly alert to unusual sounds and the potential for someone, the enemy or anybody to walk into our killing zone. Imagine coming into civilian life and your killing zone, your trip flare, your OP, your MAG gunners, your ambush zones are still active. It's a recipe for disaster. You know, when the trip flare position is acute, blood flow to the relay station or the OP is significantly reduced. And this is something I found a lot of people actually didn't know. Blood flow to the front of the brain gets absolutely reduced when the back of your brain or your ambush zone kicks up. So what happens is that the more you kick up in the back of your brain, the more restrictive is your capacity to think, plan, assess and interpret. Which, of course, if you think about it, it can and it does result in behaviors that can be destructive to yourself and others. So the consequence of a shutdown OP and an activated trip flare state can result in a contact. And, you know, as I've said earlier, having a contact in civilian life, whether it's at your kids, your wife, your boss, your friends, is a really bad thing. It comes out with a lot of very negative consequences. The third thing I want to talk about is the contact sequence. Contact sequence is that part of your brain that gets you ready to react and initiate a response. It's that part of your brain that carries your HE grenades, your FOSS grenades, your claymores, MAGs, mortars, whatever else you're carrying. And you know, sorry guys and girls, but you know, I come from the 70s when we fought a war and I'm sure 
weaponry and everything else is very different now, but if you get my meaning, you've got my meaning. Now, remaining in contact zone will always result in casualties in civilian life. And casualties in civilian life, because you've gone into contact mode, is never going to be excusable. Stuff goes down as a result. The impact of this level of arousal and reactivity on well-being at high levels is also really toxic to you. And it can increase the likelihood of self-destructive behaviors. So if you're not managing them, your anxiety is going to kick up, your stress is going to kick up, and alcohol abuse is going to kick up. And the worse your territory and civilian life gets, the more conflictual it gets, the more your anxiety, stress, and even potentially alcohol abuse are going to, are going to occur. Okay, so to um, slowly draw this to a close, um, I will now take it that all of you are operationally trained neuroscientists. All right, so well done. No certificates come with us. And um, slowly what I'd like to do in podcast is to look at some simple and effective ways for all of you to begin to create more blood flow to the front of your brain and slowly move you from reactivity to reason. All right, from reactivity to reason. And so I'll get to this over, over future podcasts. And, um, you know, I think this is something as well. Give to your partners to read, your non-veteran partner. Think about it. If you have anything that you'd like to ask me questions about this, again, feel free to um, send me a message. You can contact me on my website, which is www.barryswarestein.com, B-A-R-R-Y-Z-W-O-R-E-S-T-I-N-E.com. You can leave a voice message there, a normal message. You can contact me on the Facebook author group, but please feel free to... um, to send me a message, touch ground with me, and I'm happy to answer anything. I right, take care. I hope you find this useful. I'd love to get your feedback. And um, guys and girls, try and stay on your OP. Avoid your ambush zone. Cheers, eh? Bye.